Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, good morning, everybody. Great to see you here. I want to just echo what Wes said about VBS uh, and just say thank you to all the volunteers who've been working over the past few weeks to get all this set up. Doesn't the set look wonderful? Uh, it's great, and if you've seen any of the other, yeah, if you've seen any of the other rooms or our lobby, you know that a lot of the other areas of our building have been decorated as well as we get ready for VBS. And so, uh, as Wes said, be praying for uh, the families that will be impacted, the kids that will be impacted, our leaders. Thank you so much if you're volunteering this week. Any amount of time, thank you for your, uh, your, your, volunt- your willingness to volunteer and to help out with VBS this week. We're looking forward to what God's going to do through this awesome event this coming week. So be in prayer for that. Uh, it's good to be back with you here this morning. We had a little vacation last weekend, so it was good to get, a, get away. And I don't know if you've been on vacation lately and gone anywhere else, but depending on where you go, like not everything is open right now. And so where we went, uh, the things that were open were basically restaurants. And so we did a lot of eating uh, last week. So there's, there's a little bit more of me here with you uh, than there was a couple weeks ago. But it was totally worth it, totally worth it. Uh, We had a great time. So good to be back with you this morning as we continue our series called Being the Church as we're looking at the book of Ephesians. This morning we're going to be in chapter 3 starting in verse 1 in just a few minutes. But I want to remind us as we are going through this series, and of course as the title of the series implies, Being the Church, we've been talking about what it looks like to actually be the church. What does the Bible have to say about what the church is supposed to to look like. And, you know, we talk a lot about that from time to time in, in messages and, and uh, in, our, in our meetings together and those kinds of things. But the book of Ephesians is really one of those books that is set up specifically to give us this beautiful, timeless picture of what the church of Jesus is supposed to look like. And so it's one of those places that we go to to take a look at what does it look like for us to be the church? What does it look like for God to be moving among us? And what, what exactly uh, are we supposed to be living out in terms of this vision of what the church is supposed to be? And so a few weeks ago, well, several weeks ago, I guess it's been at this point, we talked about the vision of the church, what we believe North, God wants North to be looking like over the next year or so. And then we've continued this discussion as we've gotten into the book of Ephesians. And so in many ways, this series has been a series about the vision of the church. What do we believe that God wants us to to be looking like as we move forward in North, as North Bible Church together. And there's no better place in the book of Ephesians to get a picture of that. Now, in, you may have heard the church described as many different things in your years uh, in church. Um, maybe one thing, though, that you probably haven't heard the church described as is something that we're going to look at here in Ephesians chapter 3 as a mystery. Now, we know that this word mystery is, is prevalent throughout the book of Ephesians. We talked about it even in the very first week. But what Paul is going to talk about here in Ephesians 3 is the church as a mystery. And we'll get to that here in a minute, but it's a mystery in a good way. And we'll talk about why that's a really good thing to look at and why it, it actually helps us to understand more about the significance of who we are as the church. But uh, I want to give us a little bit of a heads up as we get into Ephesians 3 before we begin reading here in verse 1 in just a minute. Um, this is one of those passages that is typically considered to be a difficult passage. Uh, in many cases, in this place of the book of Ephesians, it tends to be the one that people just kind of skim over and don't spend a lot of time really paying attention to for whatever reason. There's probably a few reasons for this, though. As you read through it, what you're going to realize is that Paul is kind of given this personal appeal. And so I think in some ways when we read this, we think to ourselves, well, Paul's just kind of talking about himself a little bit and what he's going through and his situation in life. This may not really have that much to do with me, so let's just kind of move on to the next section. 
I think in other cases, another reason for this is when you read through this, the message is not exactly clear. You have to do a lot of work in context to understand where Paul is going with this. And then finally, the application is not readily apparent, really for those first two reasons in a lot of ways. And so we're going to do some work this morning. I'm going to ask you to follow along with me, stay with me. Uh, we got a lot to talk about, but I can, I can assure you of this, is that this message is very relevant to us today, especially where we're at today as the church, and it has a lot to say about the nature of what the church is supposed to look like. This is one of those, actually, it's, it's tragic that it's often neglected and not, and not as... As, as studied because it is actually one of those key passages in terms of understanding the book of Ephesians. So with that being said, let's look at Ephesians chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 1, and it says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, but when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Now to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now this was according to the eternal purpose that he was realized in Christ, in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, of course, from the beginning of this passage and the tone all the way through, this is a personal appeal that's given from the Apostle Paul. Now, as I said before, this is not just a personal appeal so that Paul can tell us just what's going on in his life. It's, there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of reporting of what's going on, the situation he's experiencing, the fact that he's in prison for preaching the gospel, all of these things. But we see this happen from time to time when Paul writes in his letters, and he's never just telling us what's going on in Paul's life. In fact, his, his ultimate desire or his ultimate goal in doing this is actually serving as an invitation to the readers to say, look, this is what I'm doing. And this is the call that I'm embracing, and this is the invitation that goes out to you as well as believers to follow in the same way that I have followed the call of Jesus in my life. In other words, when Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, this is exactly what is, is going on here. This is a personal appeal, but it's also a personal invitation to say, just as the stewardship or the calling or the administration of God's grace has been given to me, it has been given to you as the church as well. Now, as you read through this, you may realize right away that what Paul's talking about, of course, is that he is in prison, which is a little unsettling when you realize that that's the same kind of call that he's calling us to. It doesn't necessarily mean that we will end up in prison for following Jesus, but it doesn't mean that we won't either. The biggest, the biggest calling here is essentially that we would follow the same calling with the same fervency and dedication that Paul himself has modeled for us. It's not just for the super apostles, it's not just for Paul the apostle, it's for all of us as Christians to emulate. So, 
One of the things, though, that we see in all of this, as we talked about earlier, is that, is that the word mystery plays a prominent role in this passage. It shows up repeatedly in the first part of Ephesians chapter 3 here. Now, if you remember the very first week when we got into chapter 1, or I think it was the second week we got into chapter 1, we saw Paul use this word mystery for the first time in reference to the gospel. And what we explained at that point is that the word mystery is essentially referring to something that needs to be revealed to us. It's not something that we won't know or never will know. In some cases it is that, but more than anything, it's something that God has hidden that, we need, that he needs to reveal to us in order for us to understand. And so when Paul talks about mystery, he talks about mystery in three different ways really in this passage. He talks about it in terms of the past mysteries, the present mystery, and then the future mystery. Notice when he talks, notice he uses uh, in, in, in verse 5, he says, he refers to the previous generations. And then in verse 9, he refers to the ages that came before. Those are past tense references to the mystery of Christ or to the mystery of the church. And then he goes into verse 10 and says, now. So he talks about now in the church, there is a present mystery that's happening. And then he talks about in verse 11, the eternal purpose pointing to the future mystery that is to be revealed. Now, I think this is important to take note of. Paul's not just making some kind of theological fringe point. What he's actually guiding us through is this understanding that the mystery of God, the way that God works in our world, the, what, the reason that God works in our world, what he does and what he does in us and through us is being revealed to us from the very beginning as you move through history. We see more and more of the revealing of this, of this mystery. And this mystery has its root in the promises that God makes. So, you go all the way back, in, in this case, to the first promise that God makes in the Bible. You remember the first promise that God makes in the Bible? It's in Genesis chapter 3. It's right after Adam and Eve have sinned, and it's in the garden. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this is the very first promise that God makes. And it's the root of this mystery that Paul's talking about. He says this to the serpent, who is Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, when God makes this promise, this is what's known, by the way, if you've never heard this phrase before, as the proto-evangelium. The proto-evangelium is just a big theological Latin word that means first gospel. It means this is the first time in Scripture and in human history that we see a promise of the good news of the gospel. It's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, we know this as a promise that ultimately leads to Jesus. But I want you to imagine for a moment that you're Adam and Eve, and you hear this promise for the first time. You don't have the rest of the Bible. In fact, none of the Bible has been written at all. The only thing that you know is that you were created by a God whom you had previously had close fellowship with, who had given you everything, who had given you this wonderful world to live in, fellowship with himself, had given you all the best tasting food you could ever eat, had provided you with a human partner that was perfect in every way for you, and he told you, not to, and he told you just not to do one thing, and you did that one thing that he told you not to do, and so your fear is that you've lost everything now. But in the midst of that, you hear God make this promise. Now, it's a great promise. Again, as we know, it leads us to Jesus. But for Adam and Eve, hearing this for the first time, they had no idea what something like this was going to look like. It was a mystery to them at that point, in other words. That doesn't mean they didn't know anything about what God was saying. I mean, they knew a couple things. If they were listening, they knew that God was promising to undo the works of evil and sin and to crush the head of the serpent, right? to ultimately defeat Satan. 
And if they were listening closely, they heard him say the offspring of the woman, and so they might have understood that it was through a human being that God would do this. But beyond that, how this human being would do that, when he would do it, how it would happen, they had no idea what that would look like. It was a mystery to them. Now, it's throughout the Old Testament, then, that we begin to see this mystery giving more revelation. So we get to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And what we realize is that this man who was promised to come and crush the serpent's head in the garden was now going to come from the lineage of Abraham. And not only would he be a blessing to the lineage of Abraham, but he would be called to be a blessing to all nations. We see that in Genesis chapter 12. And then when we get to Moses, what we see is that this man will be a righteous Israelite who will fulfill the law of Moses, and he will be a high priest who offers sacrifice on behalf of his people. When David comes, we realize that he's, the more, more the mysteries revealed is we realize he's going to be an eternal king as well. And then we get to the Old Testament prophets, and this is when things really get ratcheted up. This is where a lot of the religious leaders, by the way, miss these points in the prophets. But we see in places like Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah that not only would this man be a, a faithful Israelite, not only would he be a high priest, not only would he be an eternal king, but he would actually be God himself in the flesh. And that he would be a suffering servant who would not only be a priest who offers sacrifice, but a priest who offers himself as the sacrifice on the cross. And in many ways, that mystery had been hinted at, but it was fully understood. It wasn't fully understood until Jesus went to the cross himself and was resurrected. And so in the movement of all of the revealing of this mystery, this is past leading up to the present day that Paul is writing and into really the church age that we're in. And Paul has all of this in mind as he's talking about the revealing of the mystery of the church. That from the very beginning, it's been God's purpose to do this all the way through this man who is Jesus Christ and then his church. And this is what it's supposed to look like. And here's why this matters, right? If we take this all the way back to what Paul says in verse 1, he says, I am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. A couple of things that are really important in that. That's kind of we read through that, and maybe it seems like a, a line that we just kind of skim right over, don't pay a lot of attention to. But there's two really important phrases that happen there. For Christ Jesus and for the sake of the Gentiles. Because when you think about it, Paul was actually a prisoner of Rome. He was being imprisoned by Caesar for preaching the gospel. So technically he was a prisoner of Rome, but he says nothing about being a prisoner of Rome. He says nothing about being a prisoner of Caesar. He says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus or for Christ Jesus recognizing that it is in following the will of God, it is in following the faithfulness and in following Jesus that has led him really to the place that, he is, that he's in, this calling that God has put on his life in Jesus. And what is that calling? It's for the sake of the Gentiles. So that those who were far away from God would know the grace, the message of grace, and the message of forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus. That they would know this good news. Now, when we get to verse 6, we see that more than anything, the core of this particular passage hinges on really that understanding of the Gentiles. Verse 6, Paul essentially says, this is the mystery that I am talking about right now, that the Gentiles are now a part of God's people, of God's church. Now, why the Gentiles? Why does he spend so much time talking about the Gentiles, and why is this such a big deal? And what about this mystery of the church? 
I think it's easy for us to gloss over this reference because for us, the church has always had Gentiles, right? There's always been Gentiles among God's people. Uh, in case you don't know, a Gentile is basically somebody who is not ethnically Jewish. So I'm guessing that most of us in this room are Gentiles, right? And we've never had to experience probably the reality of not being able to be a part of God's people simply because we were Gentiles. And so when we read something like this, we tend to gloss right over it. But I think it's important for us to consider, again, the context of where Paul's coming from. Because it does have a lot to do with what we're experiencing today and who we are the church today. As we saw from the beginning of this kind of unfolding of the mystery of God's redemptive plan, it has always been God's plan to save people from all nations and all backgrounds. This is the Gentile reference here, by the way. Again, in Genesis chapter 12, God says this to Abraham, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, here's the key, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So it's God's desire, his plan from the beginning to redeem all families, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all ethnicities through the person of Jesus Christ, the lineage of Abraham. Now, as we read through the Old Testament, we see that God gives this mission to Israel. From the time they're established under Moses, they're called to be that nation among all the other nations that represent who God is to the rest of the world. Unfortunately, throughout the Old Testament, we see that generation after generation, the Israelites fail to, to follow this calling. And by the time we get to Jesus' ministry, Israel has basically gotten into a place where they have fallen into more of a type of religious and nationalistic pride than they have of this understanding of being a blessing, being a blessed nation to be a blessing to the world for all nations. And so in other words, their Jewish nationalism led them to exclude all the other nations because they considered themselves to be the blessed ones instead of being the blessed ones who were to be a blessing to the rest of the world, which there's a big difference there. And Paul, of course, growing up as Saul, being trained as a Jewish rabbi himself, was a part of this mindset for most of his life until Jesus got a hold of him. Paul was a Jewish nationalist, for lack of a better term. I mean, he was a guy who looked down on Gentiles. He was a guy who kind of took part in what he says in Ephesians 2, the kind of degrading the Gentiles by calling them the uncircumcised, which is just a way of saying, like, those people will never be God's people. They're the uncircumcised. They're the outsiders. They're the pagans. They're the rejected ones. Why us Jews are the ones who know the true God. But as we saw from Ephesians 2, Paul references both that description as well as the dividing wall of hostility as things that Jesus has torn down and transcended. That Jesus has brought together Jews and Gentiles, crossing over nationalistic lines, ethnic lines, uh, all those gender lines, everything to make us one in Christ. And here's the key. As he focuses on his calling, Paul focuses on this calling to specifically reach the Gentiles, that piece is a revelation of the mystery of God's redemption. That if the gospel of Jesus is in action, it should be working in the church that displays a church that is all about our identity in Christ across ethnic, national lines. And all the other constructs, human constructs, that we put into place. So when Paul communicates this to us, it's more than him just being 
an accommodating guy. It's more than him just being more open-minded. It's more than him just being more loving, although he probably certainly loved Gentiles a lot more after Jesus than he did before Jesus. It was Paul realizing that all along he had it completely wrong with his perspective. Because from the beginning, the revelation of this mystery was that God would draw all nations to himself in his church and for his church. Now to see how committed Paul was to seeing this issue of what we call all races and nations and languages coming together, we see this issue as something that Paul writes about actually in other places in his letters. He doesn't just write about it here in Ephesians. In fact, one of the most memorable places he writes about it is in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, he relays this story of himself and Peter being in the city of Antioch. Now, here's a couple things you need to know about the city of Antioch. The city of Antioch had a thriving church there in the early first century. But the city of Antioch itself was one of the most diverse cities in the ancient world. Because of how it was geographically situated, there was a lot of Africans who were there, a lot of uh, Middle Eastern people who were there, a lot of European people who were there, a lot of Mediterranean Jews, Gentiles, a bunch of people lived in the city of Antioch because of how it was geographically situated. Now, because of that, the church itself in Antioch was very diverse as well. All kinds of ethnicities poured in, all kinds of people from different backgrounds, nationalities, even different languages were there in the city of Antioch. And Peter and Paul had been spending some time there because God was doing some amazing work, maybe through them or, 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 or in some cases before they got there. But they were there helping to strengthen that church as one of the launching pads out into mission in the early world, in the, in the early century, early first century. And so, so, and so as they were there, some of the party of, or some of the people from the church in Jerusalem, who were of course ethnic Jews, some of those leaders decided to make a journey over to the city of Antioch to see what was going on. They had heard all these great stories about the church, and so they wanted to see firsthand what was going on in this church. And so they arrived there, and we're told that when they arrived there, of course, men from Jewish background, when it came time to eat, these men just practiced what they were used to doing, which was going to eat on their own at a separate table for Jewish people, segregating themselves away from the rest of the church who were Gentiles. And Peter walks into the scene, Paul walks into the scene, both Jewish men who had been a part of that mindset before, but who were both kind of, Jesus had gotten a hold of them and shown them differently in the church. Um, they walk into the situation, they have a choice to make. For Peter, who Paul even says had made it a custom to sit with the Gentiles all the time, because what else are you going to do in a multi-ethnic church but to sit with all of those who are a part of your church? all of a sudden changes his mind when he sees all of these Jewish men sitting off by themselves and segregating themselves from the rest of the church. And so he goes and he sits with the Jewish men. Now Paul sees this and he's infuriated. Listen to how he records this, this, this scene in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Strong words. He stood condemned by what he had done. For before certain men came from James, which is a reference to the church in the city of Jerusalem. We know that. We just went through James, right? Certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles before they came. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, which is a reference to uh, the Jewish men that were there. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, listen to that language there for a minute. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Like, Paul's not messing around here. And he confronts and rebukes Peter in front of everybody. You can imagine this scene here. This is a big deal to Paul because he's recognizing a few things. He's recognizing they're acting out of hypocrisy by doing this, by separating themselves from the Gentiles who were there, and they're acting out of step with the truth of the gospel. And so they stood condemned. And here's the reason why Paul explains why he was so upset. In Galatians chapter 3, the very next chapter, he explains the theology behind this. For in Christ Jesus you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And what is that promise? That promise that was made all the way back in the garden that was clarified again through Abraham, that all nations would be drawn by the promise of God, by the good news of God. Now, this, of course, this morning, this is a a bit of a vision sermon, as we've been asking ourselves all throughout this series, what is the church supposed to look like? And when it comes to the church looking something like this, this can be a little bit of an awkward conversation to have, especially because it implies things like diversity and multi-ethnic realities and communities within the church. And those are huge buzzwords in our world today. I don't know if you've noticed that before. But I hope what we can see as we read through this is that multi-ethnic is not a buzzword or a political agenda. And if we limit it to that, we've missed something very important about Scripture and what God wants His church to look like. Long before it was an American political buzzword, it was what Paul called the mystery of the gospel in the church. It was the Gentiles becoming fellow heirs with the Jews. It was the Gentiles becoming part of the same body with the Jewish people. It was Jesus transcending ethnic and racial divisions so that he could bring all of it together under his headship. Not a king for Israel, but a king for all nations. And here's, and here's why, I know as we talk about stewardship of the church, here is why and vision for the church. Here is why this issue of multi-ethnic church is such a big deal. Let me give you three reasons why, at least. First of all, a multi-ethnic church glorifies God. You know, in Scripture, we have two really important scenes of what the church looks like. What we might consider the birth of the church, which happens in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, and what we might also call the, and what we might call the destiny of the church, which we see in Revelation chapter 7. Now, I want to read both of these passages back to back. This is the birth of the church and the destiny of the church. In other words, the two times when God is basically presenting to us the church, unspoiled, uncut, undivided, this is exactly what it looks like when it begins, when it's born by the Holy Spirit, and then this is exactly what it looks like when it's consummated for eternity in Revelation chapter 7. Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 12 says this, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, 
because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are, are, not, uh, all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now I want you to notice in both of those, how each of these scripture pieces go into great lengths to show us and to present to us that all nations are gathered together. All languages are gathered together as God's people in the church, at the birth of the church and for the destiny of the church. Luke even lists all of the nations that are there in the book of Acts in case we miss it. And so this is not just a push. When we apply these things and we look at what this has to say, this is not just a push to say we need to be more diverse for the sake of diversity. It's saying that the more diverse we are, the more we actually look like the church of Acts. The more we actually look like the church of Revelation. In other words, it's what God designed the church to look like. The Acts account, the birth of the church, and the Revelation account of the destiny of the church, both tie together and both if you read them together, show us these parallel accounts. A multi-ethnic church is, not, is important not, not because diversity is a buzzword or, political, uh, or some kind of political policy, but because Jesus is most glorified when he is the king for all nations. And when that is seen among us in the community, it represents the revealing of the mystery that has been promised from the very beginning. Like this is Paul's aim in this because he knows that God's eternal purpose, as he says in verse 11, is so important that he's willing to go to prison for it. For the church of the Jews and Gentiles, to, for Paul, the church of the Jews and Gentiles together, for all nations together was not an option. It was the truth of the gospel. Now, a multi-ethnic church glorifies God. I think a multi-ethnic church is also a blessing to us. You know, I've had opportunity in my life uh, to spend time with Christians from all over the world. I know Christians from all different areas of the United States, which you may know that represents a lot of different cultures. I know Christians from uh, the Midwest, Christians from the South, Christians from the Northeast, Pacific Northwest, Christians from, of course, the Western region of the U.S., where I grew up personally. But I've also known Christians from outside of the U.S. all over the world. I've known Christians from Asia and Africa, Europe, Mexico, Canada, the Middle East. I've known South, uh, South, uh, white South African Christians and black South African Christians. I've known Jewish Christians and Palestinian Christians. And I've learned something, I think, in my interactions with each one of them. And usually what I've learned is this, is that it's easy to walk into somebody else's culture and immediately identify kind of the cultural blind spots that they have. But in many times that I've been with those 
Christians from other cultures, as we've gathered around Scripture, as we've worshipped together, as we've prayed together, what I've been able to see is there are a whole bunch of cultural blind spots that I have as well about my Christianity. There are times when I realize my Christianity was more American Southern Baptist from Arizona than it was Christianity from Scripture itself. Because that's how I grew up. And I think for, for all of us, right, most of us probably heard we are a product of our environment. And I think that's really true, especially if we have spent most of our time in one culture, most of our lives in one culture in particular. We like to think we have unbiased perspectives, but in reality, uh, none of us are completely unbiased. The way that we come to even Scripture has a flavor to it based on our past experiences. And so I think one of the things that's a blessing about being able to be multicultural and multi-ethnic is that those cultural differences have a way of exposing one another as cultural blind spots. And especially as Christians, as we gather around the truth, culture exposes culture, but truth rises to the top. When you're gathered around Scripture and you realize that this is what God has designed the church to be, and you gather with other Christians from other backgrounds, other cultures, other ethnicities, what this does is actually give us a clearer understanding of what the truth of Scripture is because culture exposes cultural underpinnings and cultural blind spots. And what that does is make the church more of a truth-telling church, the church more of a faithful church, and the church more of a church of blessing for us as well. And finally, a multi-ethnic church is a witness to the world. You know, in the ancient city of Antioch, not only, of course, what is, was it ethnically diverse, but it was also very ethnically divided, just in the city. And in that way, I think, in, in a lot of ways, the ancient city of Antioch was a lot like our nation. I think we can learn a lot by looking at that situation. And the church of Antioch was also diverse, as we mentioned earlier, but they had a tremendous ability to maintain unity amongst the diversity that they had within that church. And so when Paul's talking about this is the mystery of the church, Jews and Gentiles being brought together under one heading, under one banner, under one king, the king who is for all nations, the, city, the, the church of the city of Antioch was representing that probably as well as could be expected. Now here's one of the things that's significant. If you, if you know the book of Acts, you know that that church is actually mentioned by name. In Acts chapter 11, we're actually told that it was at Antioch that the name Christian was born. It's the first time that followers of Jesus were called Christians in Acts chapter 11 at the church of Antioch. You know the reason for that? Basically, it's because the church was so diverse that they couldn't call each other by Africans, Syrians, Jews, Gentiles, whoever it may be, right? There were so many of those groups that they just got to a place where they just called each other Christians, <laughs> right? Those secondary things fall off, and their main primary identity, which united them all, was this identity of being a Christian, and we see Antioch as an example of what this looks like. Now, look, the reality is not every church is going to be nearly as diverse, probably, as the church at the city of Antioch. But what we see is that this representation of what it looks like to be people who are under the banner of the king who is for all nations is represented there. Because as we mentioned, diversity is a big issue in our culture right now. Everyone's talking about being diverse. We see it in media, entertainment, in the marketplace our job place. But just like a hundred other words, diversity has become kind of this loaded term, and everyone's feeling these tensions regarding diversity and trying to come up with solutions, right? These differences that we have within our cultures and those kinds of things. But the solutions of the world that we've seen come up are, are solutions that quite honestly just fall short. Whether it's critical race theory or Marxism or intersectionality, they define and identify a problem. The problem being that 
you know, there's division and there's uh, racism that's going on, but at the same time, they don't solve the problem because all they do is set classes and races against one another. And so they fall short of the real solution. As the church, though, when you look at the stewardship of God's grace for the world, we have the answer to the reconciliation of what God has planned from the very beginning. When the world is all about trying to figure out how, how, how our conflicts and divisions over race and gender and nationality can be resolved, what we realize is that we have a king who, not, who doesn't set, or a message that doesn't set race against race or class against class, but brings together all people from all nations under the salvation and the calling and the kingdom of one king. A king for all nations. And when it happens faithfully in the church, not only not when we just agree with it, or not when we just talk about it, but it actually is pictured and represented in the church to the world, the world sees a powerful witness that the gospel of Jesus works. There's something different that's happening among that group of people. You know, Martin Luther King once said that 10 a.m. on Sunday is the most segregated hour in America. And, of course, he said that as a challenge to the American church because he saw, I think, what Paul sees in this, is that it's God's design that the church would be a community where all nations come together under the banner of Christ's kingdom. Now, the sad news is that proportionally, 60 years after Martin Luther King said that, 60 years or so, um, it's proportionally just as true as it probably was back then. You probably heard that our nation is becoming more and more diverse, of course, so that by year 2050, the estimates are that uh, white Americans who have been the majority since the founding of America are going to be the minority, under 50% or so by 2050. And as the nation grows much more diverse, the church is staying much more homogenous. Whether that's historically white churches, historically Hispanic churches, historically black churches, the churches are stay, in America are staying much more homogenous than the surrounding culture around us. And our workplaces and our schools, our stores, everywhere you go is much more diverse than when you come to church on Sunday morning. And I think we should realize that the future of churches who will grow and who will be successful are those who are willing to be multi-ethnic because all nations coming together is a part of the calling of what we've been given. Go out and reach all nations, making disciples of them in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the beautiful thing about the U.S. becoming more diverse is that we don't have to go out to all the other nations to reach the nations. The nations are coming to us. But this is not something that happens on accident, on its own. It's something that we have to be intentional about. Derwin Gray says this, Just because America is becoming more ethnically diverse doesn't mean that local churches magically will become more ethnically diverse along with it. As humans, we tend to be tribal and ethnocentric. We like being with our kind. In other words, we're a lot like Peter at Antioch. Given the choice, we will typically want to sit at the table of our own kind. So if we're going to reach the world by making disciples of all nations, it has to be intentional. It's not going to happen overnight. And just being diverse is not necessarily the ultimate goal. The goal is becoming a church that glorifies God and is a blessing in the way that God has designed the mystery of the church to function. I want to close with this. In case you're thinking to yourself, how in the world do we do this in North Scottsdale? What does that look like? 
Matt Chandler, who many of you may know, um, may have read his books, seen his videos, whatever it may be, he pastors a church called the Village Church in Flower Mound, Texas. I don't know if you know too much about Flower Mound, Texas. It is a, uh, a upper middle class suburban town outside of Dallas, and it's historically been very white. In fact, Matt Chandler describes Flower Mound this way. It's a bleached out Mayberry in a snowstorm. So, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, he said it, I didn't, but there you go. But he, wrote, he, he recently wrote about something that the church leadership at the Village Church decided to do about five to seven years ago regarding becoming more intentionally multi-ethnic. And he describes it this way. He says, For the last five to seven years, we have sought to understand theologically, philosophically, and practically what it will look like to become a multi-ethnic, Christ-centered, gospel-shaped church. And we have given ourselves over to that prayerful and difficult pursuit. The fruit has been stunning, and we are a more mature, more passionate more worshipful church because of it. More mature, more passionate, more worshipful church because of it. And I think there's a reason for that. We see it in Scripture. It's what the church is supposed to look like. So I, wanted, I think that's a bit of a blueprint. I want to just give us three things as we close to focus on. Here are three things we can commit ourselves to do as a church. First of all, pray. I think more than anything, uh, any calling from God in this regard is a heart issue. And so, as Matt Chandler says, this was a prayerful pursuit that they were on for five to seven years. When we pray, we need to ask that God would lead us by his spirit to be the church that we are supposed to be here at North Bible Church, whatever that looks like. And in that prayer time, to open our hearts to realizing that whatever that looks like, Lord, you make it look the way that you want it to be here at North Bible Church. And Lord, would you prepare my heart for what that is going to look like? And would I celebrate it and see it when you bring it? Secondly, we need to listen. We need to be able to listen to what God says in our word. When we, in his word. When we read passages like this, and this isn't the only one. As I mentioned, Paul writes a lot about this in his letters. Read the, read the book of Galatians, right? That's another one. Paul talks about this quite a bit because it was a problem then. It's an issue for us now. But when we read about Jews and Gentiles crossing ethnic and national lines because Jesus crossed that line, we need to see the church like this as a gospel necessity. If all that we hear when we hear the term multi-ethnic or diversity is a politically loaded term, we need to stop and camp in places like this until we realize this is a biblically loaded term. And then finally, we need to move. Hopefully, uh, you know, as we've talked through this, the theology behind this is pretty obvious. We've, we've talked in Scripture about how this is presented, but... I think in terms of what it means for us to move, if we can pray and we can listen to God, then we can be ready to move when God calls us forward into this, whatever it looks like. So it may require us to sacrifice. It may require us to be awkward at times. It may require us to be uncomfortable. It may require us uh, to lay down preferences or to allow our, uh, allow our perspectives to be challenged. I mean, certainly all those things happened in the Apostle Paul's life as he went through this journey. Klein Snodgrass even says this, the only reason why Paul was in prison was because he thought the Gentiles had the same access to God that the Jews did. If he had been content to be a Jewish Christian with a mission to Jews, or if he had been willing to keep Gentiles on a lower plane, he would not have been in jail. In what Paul calls suffering in prison, he was convinced that it was so worth it so that all nations, all people could experience the grace of God and that the church could become what it was meant to be that he was willing to go to prison for it. 
And when he was in prison, he didn't say, cry, cry for me, weep for me. He said, I've done this and it's worth it and I'm here because God has put me here and everything that I've sacrificed is worth it so that the Gentiles, those who are far away from God, might know who Jesus is. We are called to do the same. And this is our mystery that God has called us as the church to reveal to the world. Let's pray. Father, we've talked about um, some really deep things today. Uh, things that are theologically deep, things that are historically uh, deep. Uh, things that we have reached for in terms of uh, what it means for us to understand uh, who, you want our, who you want the church to be and, then, and specifically who you want North Bible to be. And so, Lord, as we are leaning into this, we know that the first thing that we need to do is come before you in prayer. Um, we want your church to look like your church, to look like a church that glorifies who Jesus is and that we believe correctly, we speak correctly, but also that we live and act and display correctly what the church is supposed to look like. And so, Lord, we lay ourselves before you, we lay our hearts before you, and we ask uh, that you would direct us, that we would be willing and ready to move when you say to move. And if that involves being uncomfortable, if it involves sacrificing things, if it involves our perspectives being challenged, Lord, we ask that you would do all of the above and more. As we talked about, we know that Paul, when he talks about being a prisoner of Christ Jesus, um, that he is not just talking about his situation, but he is, by your word, calling us to embrace the same kind of mindset. That whatever it takes, whatever it requires of us, that this is worth it this calling that you have called us to, so that all people, all nations, as you have planned from the beginning, would come to know the one true king. And that the beauty of all nations gathered together as we look forward to the picture of Revelation chapter 7. We would be enthralled with the beauty of that because that's what glorifies you. Whether it's what we want or not, doesn't matter. It's what glorifies you. So Lord, change our hearts where they need to be changed. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Give us boldness and faith where we need to have it. And above all, turn us, mold us into the church that you have called us to be. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, We'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. So if you, would, uh, if you would like someone to pray with you, we have our prayer partners who are available on the right-hand side of me today. So as we leave here, if you, there's something that you would like them to pray with you about or pray for you about, um, they're there to pray with you. Um, also, if you uh, would like to uh, write down some prayer requests for us so that we can be praying for them throughout the week, we have a staff 
team, a prayer team, and our elder team that pray over those prayer requests every week. We have prayer, uh, prayer request cards that are back on that table as you leave. You can drop those in our offering stands as you leave here this morning. Make sure that the, they'll make sure that we get them to the right place, and we'll be praying for you and praying with you this week. And then finally, I want to remind you that we have a uh, town hall meeting uh, reg- regarding the budget and some upcoming things regarding this next year. Uh, right now, right after this service, over in the theater. So we want to encourage you to join us for that. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website, at northbiblechurch.com.